Church. This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. Luke 13, 10 through 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised to God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amber, thank you for doing our reading. Let's pray and ask our God to speak to us today. Lord, you are wonderful, beautiful, amazing. And you want to have a relationship with us that is beautiful and wonderful and amazing. We thank you, Lord, that you have made that possible through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. That our sins can be forgiven, we can be made holy and pure because of his blood being shed for us. And Lord, we thank you that you have sent your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of God, the Lord, different names. But that Spirit lives in us to teach us, to guide us, to empower us, to help us, help us conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And we say thank you. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Illuminate us. Teach us this morning. We ask that God, the Spirit, would minister to those who are not in this room that are part of our church that we love. Our friends and family members, some are deployed, some are at school, some are missionaries, some are ill, some are just away, and we pray for you to minister to them. And Lord, some of them will be listening to this message online, and we ask you to bless them as they listen. Let them know of our care and our love for them. I humbly ask that the Holy Spirit would speak through me now words that are true and that honor Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. One afternoon while I was still a young Navy chaplain, I was in my parents' garage lifting weights, and I was fortunate that my ship was home-ported in San Diego, and my parents retired in San Diego, so I spent a lot of time over at my folks' house, and I was in the garage lifting some heavy barbells when my mom walked into the garage from the side, and so I turned to look at her right when I was lifting the weights, and we both heard an audible snap, and the next thing I knew, I was on the garage floor in a fetal position. Mom came over and very helpfully said, I think you ruptured a disc, (laughs) And then she helped me get up, but I was completely bent over. She said she'd take me to the base medical clinic, and I was in my workout clothes, and and I wasn't sure what the rules were. What's the military protocol? Can I go in my workout clothes because I'm all bent over? Do I have to put on my uniform? I'll put my uniform on just in case. So I struggled to get my uniform on and got in the car and huddled in the car. Mom drives me to the clinic, and... Fortunately, my dad retired 06, so we could park really close to the door. 
She parked close to the door, and I just had to get from the car door to the door of the clinic, and I prayed that no one in uniform would see me because, again, I didn't know the rules. When you're bent over and someone salutes you, do you salute bent over? Do you try to straighten up and salute? Do you look the other way as if you haven't seen them? What do you do? So I said, Lord, don't let anybody in uniform come near me. And the Lord answered my prayer. He said, no. (laughs) And so the sailor comes and gives me a salute, and ah! (laughs) Any of you who have had back pain know exactly what it's like. Fortunately, I didn't have a ruptured disc. I just had a pulled, snapped muscle of some sort, and with therapy and time, it's starting to feel a lot better. (laughs) Today we come to Luke chapter 13, a woman with a back problem. We're in a series on encountering Jesus, and last week we saw the very first encounter that the God-man, Jesus, had as God-man with another human being. That was an encounter, of course, with his mother, Mary, and we saw that through her life, she yielded her will to God's will. Let it be done unto me, she said. We learned from that that we have the best life when we yield our will to God's will. Not the easiest life, but the best life. Which brings us to another encounter in Luke 13. If you take out your outlines, you'll see uh, we have some background stuff that we're going to talk about, and there's a lot of space there. You can write down amazing things that I say or doodle or whatever you want to do in that space, and then we'll get to the points a little bit later in the message. But when we come to Luke 13, verse 10, we find Jesus as a guest speaker in a synagogue in an undisclosed location. It says in verse 10, and Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. I don't know if you're aware that the Jews only had one temple, only one place where they could offer sacrifices and offerings, one temple located in Jerusalem. It's the only place they could offer animal sacrifices for their sins. Once a year, the high priest would go in, and he'd go to the Holy of Holies, and he'd bring blood that had been shed by an animal in order to appease God for his sins, and also blood for the sins of the nation of Israel. A lot of people have a misunderstanding that this blood took away their sins. It did not. The, sin did not, the blood did not take away their sins. It covered over their sins until the time Christ would come and shed his blood, and only Christ's blood can take away sins. In Hebrews 10.4, the writer of Hebrews is trying to correct some Jewish thinking as they're moving from the Old Testament system to the New Testament system. And in Hebrews 10.4, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was just a covering. God said, do this in faith that your sins someday will be forgiven. Do this as a way of having fellowship with me, but know that your sins have not yet been removed as far as the east is from the west, not to the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why in 1 John 1, 7, it says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
Only through Jesus' blood can mankind's sins be removed. But in the Old Testament system, in anticipation of the coming of Christ, they had the animal sacrifices, and they could only be offered in the one temple. But not everybody lived near the temple as the Jews began to spread out. And so according to Jewish law, they said that wherever there were at least 10 Jewish males, they had to have a synagogue. Synagogue was a place where they had judicial proceedings, kind of like a town hall or city hall. It was also a place of worship where they would read from the Torah a prescribed reading each Sabbath, where they would have some teaching by a rabbi, perhaps a guest rabbi, and they would have prayer. And so as the Jews spread out through Israel, through Greece, through Asia Minor, they started building these synagogues. And as God would have it, the synagogues became great starting points for the spread of the gospel. And that's why you have the Apostle Paul, a Jew, when he was sharing the gospel, he would go to the synagogue first, to the Jew first. And the synagogues were all over. Wherever you had 10 Jewish males, you had a synagogue. So it was a wonderful way to spread the gospel. And they would have guest speakers. And Paul would go in there as a guest speaker, and he would share from the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, about the Messiah and say, he has come. Now, each synagogue had a synagogue president, ruler, and his job was, you know, he had the keys, he opened up the building, he set up the sound system, you know, turn on the air conditioning, that kind of thing. He would arrange the speakers, the program. And so, when we come to our text, we see Jesus coming into the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath, and Jesus healed at least seven times perhaps more than that, but seven are recorded in the Scriptures on the Sabbath day. It says in verse 10, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, we don't know where, but there were many, on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. This would be an evil spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. 18 years. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. An instant and complete miracle. Hallelujah. Praise God. You cannot underestimate the excitement this woman must have had after 18 years. Those of us who have experiencing this cold that won't go away, and I was telling someone, well, I've had it for two months, and they go, oh, my colleagues have had it for three months. Just getting over a cold, you go, hallelujah, praise God. Can you imagine bent over for 18 years, instantly healed? Now, I bet you this lady was really glad that she hadn't missed church that Sunday. Next week, one of her friends comes, hey, I missed last week. What happened? <laughs> you know. Once again, I'd like you, if you know the story, to forget what you know for a moment. Let's pretend like we've never heard this story before, and let's write the ending. What would we expect to happen next? 
This woman, for 18 years, maybe she's come faithfully to the synagogue for 18 years. We don't really know. But let's suppose she's come on a regular basis. She's struggled. She's faithful. She's there. And now she's instantly healed. We would, if we wrote the story, we would assume that the synagogue ruler says, praise God. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a break. Go home. Go to your neighborhood. Find your friends. Anybody with a sore back, bad knee, bad hips, headache, blind, deaf, bring them here. We'll reconvene in about 30 minutes. And everybody goes out, and you would think the synagogue ruler goes, hey, now, your name is what again? Jesus? Who are you again? And how did you do that? And you aren't the one we've been hearing about doing miracles, are you? Are you? No. Are you the Messiah? I mean, that's kind of how I would have written the story. That's what you would think would be a normal thing to have happen. But if you know the story, you know, unfortunately, that's not how the story progresses. It involves a rebuke, a counter-rebuke. It involves the synagogue dividing it into a group of people. Some are humiliated and some are exhilarated. Let's pick up the story in verse 14. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a Jewish believer, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as Jesus said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire multitude were rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. You have the humiliated and the exhilarated. synagogue ruler, along with many other opponents who believed what the Pharisees taught, had turned God's purpose of the Sabbath on its head. At one point, Jesus had said in Mark 2.27, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had turned it around as if the Sabbath wasn't made for man, and as if man was made for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was given to us to be a day of freedom, not bondage. A day to be set free from the tyranny of the urgent. The Sabbath was to be a weekly vacation. You hear people say, oh, I never take a vacation. Well, shame on you. You should have a vacation every week. It's the Sabbath principle to be set free from the daily pressures of work and to sit aside that day for a day of family bonding, rest, recuperation, and communion with God. It's a weekly vacation. But the Pharisees and those who followed their teachings had made it a day of bondage, a day that you didn't look forward to. They added all these ridiculous rules 
that were man-made. And if you broke the Sabbath, one of the punishments was death. Let me read to you just a few of these ridiculous rules that the Pharisees came up with about the Sabbath. They taught that you should not look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair, and that would be reaping. Wow, some of us would do a lot of reaping, wouldn't we? (laughs) They said, I like this one, you could only eat an egg which had been laid on the Sabbath if you kill the chicken for breaking the Sabbath. Wow, how about that? A donkey could be led out of the stable on the Sabbath. But the harness and saddle had to be placed on that donkey the day before. You couldn't put the saddle on it that day. That would be work. The Sabbath began at sundown. If the lights were on, your candles, your lanterns were lit on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath began, you couldn't blow them out. had to leave them on all night. If you forgot to light them and it got dark, you couldn't light them because that would be work and that would be breaking the Sabbath. It was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. Some of the men might like that idea. Honey, I can't move your couch today. It's the Sabbath. (laughs) But you could move a ladder, fortunately, but you could only move it four steps. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath since this might be construed as carrying a burden. They must have pretty heavy jewelry, I guess. It was not permitted to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. How about that? (laughs) You were allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping the radish into salt because you might leave it in the salt too long and that would pickle the radish and that would be work and that would be violating the Sabbath. And then the last one on my list, there were many, but the last on my list, it was okay to spit on the Sabbath as long as you spit on a rock. But you couldn't spit on the ground because it would hit dirt and the dirt would turn to mud and mud was considered a type of mortar and that is work. (laughs) These are the ridiculous rules that put people under bondage on the Sabbath. I would imagine they go, oh no, it's the Sabbath! (laughs) Ah! So Jesus broke the Sabbath, not God's Sabbath. He broke the man-made foolish rules of the Sabbath. And after straightening out this woman's back, Jesus turns to straighten out the bent teaching of the synagogue ruler and the Pharisees. And where the woman received eagerly her correction, the ruler And the Pharisees rejected Jesus' healing correction. And we can learn from both the good and the bad example. If you look at your outline, here's a first lesson to learn from this. When you encounter Jesus, let Jesus straighten out your bent life. 
Let Jesus straighten out your bent life, whether it's physical, moral, spiritual, mental. And if you're thinking there's nothing in your life that needs straightening out, well, that's the first thing that needs straightening out. (laughs) We all need correction. We all need continued correction. Sometimes just a gentle nudge, sometimes a huge push to get us in the right direction. If this woman had refused Christ's correction in her life, if she had refused to be straightened out, we would call her a fool. And yet when it comes to straightening out the things of the soul, we all too often are like this synagogue ruler. We're blinded to our need for correction. He is the fool. And so are we when we don't want to be corrected by our Lord. It's much easier, of course, to notice the physical issues in our life that need correcting, not the most important ones, the ones of the character and the soul. We demonstrate that any time we go to a prayer meeting and we listen to the prayer requests. And almost all, if not all, the prayer requests have to do with something that is not of the soul. It's usually something physical. My finances, my cold, my back, my knee, a disease, a difficulty at work, a job, car breaking down, child rebellion. And those things are important to pray for, but we leave out what is even more important to pray about. We say, I have an issue with I'm not going to give you an example because if I do, then you're going to think that's my issue. (laughs) Fill in your own blank. (laughs) Something with your character that you know is not Christ-like. It needs to be straightened out. We need prayer for that, but we're very reticent to share that with other people. And maybe rightly so because we're not sure if we can trust them with these things. And that also is something that needs to be straightened out. Let Jesus straighten out your bent life, whether it's physical or moral or emotional or spiritual. And if you're not sure where to start, do what King David did. Ask God to show you because he knows. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, listen to what King David prayed. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, God knows your heart. He's really saying, know my heart and show it to me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Show me what needs to be straightened out in my character and lead me in the everlasting way. Straighten me out. Let Jesus straighten out your bent life, body, soul, and mind. Can you imagine this woman telling Jesus, Oh, don't straighten me out. My back is just fine. (laughs) I'm used to it. 18 years, you know. (laughs) Or if she said, why do you think I need straightening out? (laughs) I don't need straightening out. I'd be foolish. No, thank you, Jesus. I don't believe in you. Just leave me alone. Ridiculous, right? Yet the synagogue official who needed to be straightened out in matters of the heart, defended himself tenaciously that he didn't need straightening 
out. And he let his emotions take control. And he started saying foolish things. And when we are enraged or filled with emotion, we start saying and doing foolish things. Notice verse 14. And the synagogue official, indignant, his emotion has taken over. This is a very strong word. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Therefore, come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. How silly is that? That's like putting a sign up on the synagogue door that says something like, no miracles on the Sabbath. It's a day for God's glory. Really? No healing on the Sabbath? No miracles on the Sabbath? No encountering God in a miraculous way on the Sabbath? It's like having you come to church here and go, well, don't praise God today. It's Sunday. (laughs) Don't give God glory. Don't let God do any work here. This is a church. That would be ludicrous. And he continues to say silly things. He says, six days in which work should be done, therefore come during them. He says, Bring your lame and your blind and your deaf to the synagogue all the other days. Like, well, who's going to be here to heal them those days? Hello? What a foolish thing. And then, did you notice? He never has the courage to address Jesus directly. He scolds the crowd the multitude who watched the miracle. Kind of like, hey, what are you looking at? You know? (laughs) He scolds them for looking at the miracle. Saying to the multitude, it says. When we let our emotions take over, when we get blinded by our emotions, common sense seems to go out the window. One of our church board members wisely put it this way, He said, you can't win an emotional argument with the facts. Because people who are all emotional don't care about the facts. They don't care about the truth. They just are emotional. But the facts are that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man's benefit. Those are the facts. I might remind you that when Jesus wants to straighten us out, He often comes disguised as somebody else, as your spouse or your roommate, maybe your pastor, your friend, your employee, maybe even an adversary who knows the Lord. Jesus wants to straighten out our life. and I mean, isn't that really the plan? That's the plan, Romans 8, 29, that we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. And so when Christ tries to conform us to himself, we should say, hallelujah, praise God. Synagogue official tries to straighten things out his way, and he accuses the wrong people. He uses the wrong method, and he believes the wrong things as he does so. 
Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I think there's another way to put that, and that's our second lesson, and that's this. When you encounter Jesus, remember, rules, rules are to benefit relationships. Rules are to benefit relationships, not harm them, not harm them. The primary purpose of rules is always to help us, not to hurt us. God's rules are given to improve our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. That's why He gives us rules. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 20, some of the most famous rules ever given. Even the unbeliever knows about these rules, may not know what they are. We call them the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You might recall that as you read the Ten Commandments, you'll see the first four have to do with having a better relationship with God. And He gives us rules to have a better relationship with Him. And the next six talk about how to have a better relationship with other people. And so we're given rules so we can have better relationships. Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. If you are worshiping other gods, you are committing spiritual adultery, and that really hurts your relationship with the one true God. You shall not make for yourself, it says in verse 4, an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want a pure, wholesome relationship with you, and I don't want you committing spiritual adultery out there. I'm jealous for you. I love you. And then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, it's bad for your relationship with God if you worship other gods. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments, my rules. You keep my rules, it's so much better for our relationship together and for your whole family and for generations to come. Your relationship with God today is going to affect the relationship of your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. That's what it says, for thousands, it says, to come. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. It's really bad for relationships when you go around slandering people. When you gossip about people, it hurts relationships. And God says, don't take my name in vain. Don't say anything about me that's not true. That really hurts our relationship, and you'll be punished for it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There's sort of a transition here. This helps your relationship with God, but it also helps your relationship with other people. He says, in it you shall not do any work. The Pharisees got focused on the work thing and started to describe all these things that are work and made all these ridiculous rules. 
You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. He says, this is a family thing. This is a household thing. Everybody takes the same day off. Everybody relaxes together. And then he tells us, and he makes us clear, that this isn't just a Mosaic law. This isn't just for the Jews. This is something that went all the way back to creation. It is a creation principle. And when you violate the Sabbath principle, it's not that you're just breaking the Ten Commandments. You're breaking a creation principle. We were created to rest every seven days. For in six days, he says, going back to creation, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Why did God rest? He wasn't tired. He was setting a pattern for us. He's saying, you know, if I can make everything in six days, you certainly can get your piddly job done in six days. And if you think it takes seven days to do your job, you're taking yourself too seriously. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Holy. Isn't it interesting? We sometimes think of a church as a holy place, you know. We think of Israel as a holy land. They're not holy. He didn't make a place holy. He made a day holy. Wherever you are. You don't have to be in the church. You don't have to be in Israel. Wherever you are, it's a holy day. It's a day set apart to commune with God that helps relationships with God and with others. Then he moves into five commandments that deal directly with other people. If you want better relationships, honor your father and mother. Honor them. Respect them. That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. He's speaking specifically to Israel, and he says, the prosperity of a nation depends on the relationship of the family. You destroy the family, you destroy the nation. Just look at America. That's a bad example, by the way. You shall not murder. Murder kills relationships. (laughs) Really bad in relationships. You shall not commit adultery. Bad for relationships. You shall not steal. Bad for relationships. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Bad for relationships. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. Anything belongs to your neighbor. It is bad for relationships. Why do we have rules? To benefit relationships, not to harm them. When men come up with various rules to govern society, it should always be to make relationships better. It's not about the rule. It's about the relationships. Government sometimes forgets that. When parents come up with rules for the home, it has to be about relationships, not the rule. Sometimes parents forget that. Your child violates a rule. Maybe it's a curfew or getting the homework done or or doing the dishes or maybe they're sassy to you and they break a rule. You need to find out why they broke the rule before you punish. Because the rule is about a relationship. It's not about the rule. Honey, uh, what happened at school today? Wow. That's why you're acting this way. You find out. Oh, you tried to call and my phone was off? The car broke down? This, that, the other thing? That's why you're late? Oh, okay. 
relationships. Rules in the home shouldn't be there to cause harm. They should be there to help relationships. You have rules in your home. Are they hurting your relationships with your children or your guests or your housemate or your roommate or your spouse? Or are they helping those relationships? Sometimes you need to stop and discuss why a rule was broken and reevaluate that rule. A broken rule is not nearly as critical as a broken relationship. Now back in Luke 13, verses 16 and 17, Jesus says in verse 16 of Luke 13, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a Jewish believer as she is, whom Satan was bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? That's what the Sabbath is about, being released, being set free from bondage. And as Jesus said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. The entire multitude was rejoicing. They were exhilarated over all the glorious things being done by him. Jesus cared about relationships. The synagogue ruler cared about rules. And when the people left the synagogue that day, who do you think they were thinking about? And who do you think they appreciated more? The relationship builder or the rule enforcer? The woman who was healed certainly felt better about Jesus, the relationship builder. Let's make sure that we build relationships and not just hold rules. Would you pray with me? I'd like to ask you, if you would, to bow your heads so you can have a private moment as we pray. God made a rule, and that rule is the only way you can come into his home, into heaven, for all eternity, is accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And he gave us that rule because he wanted a beautiful, eternal relationship with each one of us. But if you break that rule, if you don't ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you cannot enter God's home and have a relationship with Him. If you're here while we're in a moment of prayer and you believe Jesus died for your sins, if you recognize that He rose from the grave and conquered death, and you've never asked Him to be your Savior, to come into your life and save you, you can ask Him right now in your heart, and just cry out to Him and say, Lord, save me, I believe. And He will. Lord, as Christians, we want to follow Your rules. But Lord, we don't want to worship rules. We want to worship You. Lord, we want to follow rules in a way that build relationships with You and with other people. Lord, show us in our own life where we need to be straightened out. And help us to cooperate with you as you do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know what Goliath you're facing in your life right now, but God is bigger. He is greater.
Thank you, Lord. You know, if you want to pray with someone here today before you leave, directly after this benediction, I'm going to close our service with, you may make your way forward to the corner of the sanctuary. Uh, Ron, our, our head elder, is waiting. And uh just love to make that available to you before you leave here today. So my brothers and sisters, may you be full of faith, quick to trust Jesus and to worship him and submit to him. For as Hebrews 11.6 says, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll see you soon.